0: From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Not everybody can wake up each morning and ask, what sounds fun today that would also contribute to my community? But my guest today can do that, thanks in large part to what he calls his neurodivergent brain and the tech boom of the 1990s. Richard Johnson launched hotjobs.com in late 1996, a time when he says very few Americans were using the internet. The company did well enough, but Johnson was frustrated that they still lagged behind their main competitor, Omnicon. One evening, on the commute home from New York City to Chatham, New Jersey, he was thinking about closing the company. But then he had an idea too compelling to ignore. Hotjobs.com would run a Super Bowl TV ad. It was a huge gamble. In 1999, the ad cost $2 million, about half of the company's reported revenue at the time. But it worked, The company's star rose and went public, albeit after the tech sector had begun its deflation. In 2001, Richard Johnson stepped away from the company. The following year, Yahoo paid $436 million for hot jobs. Johnson left New York with his wife and, by 2005, had found his way to Wilmington, North Carolina. Since then... He runs a tree farm. He's launched a nonprofit to preserve the natural beauty and public access to Masonboro Island. And he's fired up a campaign to revitalize the town of Burgaw in Pender County. His national competition, Own Your Own Restaurant, awards the winner one, a $1 million budget to design and build a restaurant in Burgaw. We'll hear about some of his other projects today, how he decides which ideas to bring to fruition where those Super Bowl TV ad ideas come from, and why he's come to view what he calls his neurodivergency as his greatest gift. He joins me now. Richard Johnson, welcome to Coastline.
1: Thank you, Rachel. What a great intro. (laughs) Gotta live up to all
0: that. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. There's this guy I'm meeting who just does Uh, all these things. (laughs) Let's get him in the room. Did you always have your sights set? On becoming a wealthy guy when you were a kid.
1: Well, that's a great question, and you know, I was surrounded by these opposite extremes. Um, You know, we grew up in a summer cottage because my grandparents were pretty wealthy, but they lost all that money, and but we still had the summer cottage, and so I was, you know, just assumed that there was kind of money. But then after my father died, you know, we were on well, you know, Social Security, and my mom had to go back to teaching. So, but I was going to school in a private school with a lot of rich kids. So it was always this haves and have not and the black and white. And so I think along the way, I don't know what triggered it, but I sort of got the bug to you know, you know, know, figure out ways to make money. So I think my first gig was in fifth grade, I bought toothpicks and at the pharmacy and I bought cinnamon oil and I would soak them in the cinnamon oil and then I go to you know school and sell them for five cents a piece, <laughs> and, um, and so I had a little side hustle side hustle at school to you know pick up those extra things. And
0: yeah, you know. do you do you remember feeling worried about your family's finances? Worried about your mom having to meet the monthly nut on her own all the time?
1: You know, God bless her. She, you know, bared all that. And, you know, kids are kids. We don't, you know, you just don't see those strains and stresses that, you know, your parents are going through. And it's just you're living in utopia. So despite, you know, losing my dad, you know, we had a pretty good life. And, you know, we weren't hungry. I mean, you know, the food, when it got on the table, sometimes we'd be a little aggressive at who got it. But, you know, we, you know, I mean, no, we never thought. I never really... Understood the whole economic thing that we were in, and until I got into college and sort of had to, you know, sort of pay for, you know, pay for that, and and uh, yeah.
0: How did your dad die? He you were you said you were just eight years old, and he was only about 40, 41?
1: So he was forty one. I was eight, and you know he got lung cancer, and just within three months, just boom, went from perfect health to uh, you know, you know, died in in July of uh, 1969. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you moved to Wilmington in 2005, and you didn't have to work at that point because you'd sold off hot jobs. The first, I guess, major project that you launched here was developing this nonprofit, org. What What made you want to do that? Why Masonboro Island?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, so, you know, we came and Loved and and masonboro was one of the things are you know We're lucky enough to have a house that looks over masonboro sound and and masonboro island is you know our gem It's it's the county's Yellowstone really and so it's just this great resource and I would Take my dogs over and you know just they'd have the run of the beach and so it's just where I went and I was there three four or five times a week and and uh it was just solitude and and came back from a summer I guess in 08 and there was all this hubbub around the fourth of July party and the state was trying to figure out what they can do about it because I guess it had gotten out of hand and so I sort of got involved then and asked what I could do to help and ended up paying for an ad to sort of try to leave it the way you found it and the next year we came back from our you know month vacation in in Pennsylvania and, and uh There was another story in the newspaper, and you know, with the headline, you know, Masonboro is not a playground, but we will close it if we have to. And so I was like, look, you know, this is a tremendous resource. If you know, the community wants to keep this, we the community has to be involved. And so we started Masonboro.org right around. There were some public meetings to add more rules and restrictions, and I guess they were used to having five or six people show up. And I wrote an editorial in the paper before that meeting, and a hundred people showed up, and um, and it was those hundred people that we sort of were the nucleus of of Hacha, or I mean, I'm sorry, Masonboro.org.
0: What what was and, the message of the editorial?
1: It was just we're going to lose this. It's you know you know I mean, it was just there's a lot going on there that people, I didn't know who managed the island. I just, you know, everybody sort of takes Masonboro for granted. They go over there, they enjoy it. And, you know, I don't see any, that the citizens of New Hanover County, they don't really create any problems over there. I mean, they clean up, after, I think everyone respects the island, but you know, that once a year, there was this huge 4th of July party and, and they were coming from all over. I think if you went to college in, in, in uh, North Carolina, you were told um, you need to be on Masonboro Fourth of July, and my wife, who went to Chapel Hill, she when she was a kid, there was some sandbar that everybody in college went to up in Moorhead, and sort of same thing. Um, so when we went over, the, so what we did was, you know, after we organized, we said let's go over there and you know deal with this problem head on, and so we went out and we had you know seventy-five volunteers the first year and. We went out there and we handed out plastic bags and just said, you know, take take your trash with you. And unfortunately, there was a lot of systemic problems or structural problems because a lot of these kids got rides over to the island and didn't have a ride back. Right. So, And it, for
0: those folks who aren't familiar, this is a, a an uninhabited island with no structures on it. Right. Is it um, ecologically no
1: important? It's a pristine – No bridges to it. It's the largest undisturbed barrier island in North Carolina. Eight miles long. It's gorgeous. And um, so, you know, I was very interested, as were the people who sort of responded and rose up. Um, And we call ourselves the Red Shirts because we all wear these masonboro.org red shirts, and Oof. and we hand out the trash bags, and and the people responded, and I think then more structure came in place. The New Hanover County structure, our sheriff started having more people over there, and you know we were removing about five thousand pounds of trash a year wow. um, for the first several years.
0: And, and it's a story every year, and it's it's interesting to me too that your first attempt to do something about it had to do with a big ad in the paper right. um, which takes us back to the idea of the Super Bowl ad.
1: Right. Certainly using media is something that I, I understand the benefits of getting your message out and so when we, we did the, you know, we have white tents, red flags, people in red shirts, it's a great image and you know, the first year we did it, we were really covered by every newspaper and and media outlet in Wilmington, and so we got a lot of publicity for what we were doing, and uh, you know, so that just led to you know us doing it every year. And after a number of years, all of a sudden, it went from five thousand to thirty five hundred to sixteen hundred to nine hundred, and last year was very unusual because of the lightning the day before, but zero pounds of trash were removed because there were nobody went to Masonboro. And they've moved to Rich's Inlet and some other places, but the party is, you know, is not what it was. And I think, you know, people will move on. And so we've kind of accomplished that um, task. And, but, you know, to the other point of Masonboro, we wanted to make sure the next generation knew what we were saving for them. So about two or three years after we started, we were like, let's get some kids over here. And so we went to Wrightsville Beach Elementary, Sissy Brooks, who ran the science program there, was all in, and Joe Abadi, who runs the you know the Shamrock or whatever it is, uh, he he ferried them over, and we took 50 kids the next the first year. Then the next year we took 150. The next year we took 300. Then we moved to a bigger boat, got up to 600, 900, and now we take every New Hanover County fifth grade student, and we take over 2,000 kids a year. And this year we hit our 10,000th kid milestone of taking them to the island. So just, you know, it's 12 years into it, but that's what something, you know, that's what something can become when people care about it and grow it. Congratulations. That
0: is a milestone. I want to talk about the way you set to work on problems, because this has sort of characterized a lot of the big accomplishments that you have in your life, starting with one of the more notable ones, the Um, the explosion of hotjobs.com. So we'll talk about that when we come back from this short break. You're listening to Coastline. Richard Johnson is my guest today. We're also going to find out after the break how and why he wants to bring life to a small town in Pender County. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Richard Johnson made his fortune creating hotjobs.com in the 1990s and selling it to Yahoo in 2002. He moved his family to Wilmington, North Carolina in 2005. While here, he started Masonboro.org to preserve access to Masonboro Island and to preserve its beauty. He started a tree farm, and he's hoping to bring new economic life and culture to the Pender County town of Burgaw, population as of 2023, about 3,000, a little over that. So Richard Johnson, just going back to the way you think about problems when they arise in your life, because this is, I think, what's so interesting to me and probably many other people, it's it's the 90s. You're frustrated that your company, hotjobs.com, is just, it's it's doing okay, but you're still spending about a $100,000 of your own money out of your own pocket each year. You're lagging behind this multinational corporate right. giant that you want to catch up with, and you're thinking on the way home about closing the company. Yep. And so, then somewhere, this idea pops into your head.
1: Well, you know, it... So I would back up that when I first became a headhunter, you know, I was told to get on the phone, get on the phone, go to the phone. There were no, It wasn't a kind of company where you're given a rule book and told to follow it. It was like, you know, act, act, act. And every time I was off the phone, I, you know, thinking about what I was going to say, the guy's like, what are you doing? Don't, don't think, act, get on the phone. And so you know, when you start doing 1,000 phone calls, 10,000 phone calls, and you, you get more and more comfortable with, you know, you're following your instinct and listen to your, you know, just doing it instead of overthinking everything. So that's kind of how my whole career evolved and, and it was just the best job I could have possibly had because as we, you know, mentioned earlier, um, I suffer from the ADHD and, and, you know, I'm neurally divergent and dyslexic and so I've got a lot of handicaps and and those definitely you know in school held me back I was a horrible student and just barely got by um
0: and at the time teachers didn't know and they had like, no
1: you know one you know one year I'd be in the worst class and then the next year I'd be in the you know the best class and so the teachers had no idea to, what to do with me and and um and you know I was math was probably my strongest subject but um Anyway, so I found this job, and so when you get to the point where I was building a company that, that you know, was really one of, you know, we had a lot of firsts. We were the first company, you know, as a, as a recruiting company in New York City in technology, we were the first company to ever advertise a, a email address in the New York Times. We would put ads in for, you know, job seekers every week, and then that was 93, and then 95, we were the first company to ever advertise a website. In the New York Times. So So you
0: knew that the internet thing was going to change the way our culture operated. You you knew you were on the cusp of something. Oh my gosh, I knew. But we weren't there yet.
1: We weren't there, but I had friends that I were placing at places like Goldman Sachs. I remember this Frank Siebenlitz. you got to see this thing mosaic. You, you can surf the Internet. I'm like, what? And uh, <laughs> you know, So I was seeing this technology from these early technologists that we were placing, and so I was aware of it. But 95 was really the bell. I went to a, a, a party that was an Internet party, one of the first ones in New York City. I just realized it was going to be the biggest thing that ever happened in my lifetime. So the next day I went to my partner and I said, Ben, you know, we need to get in the internet. Uh, You know, as of today, I'm going to start focus on some new company. He goes, I've been waiting. What's taking you so long? You know, (laughs) Because he was much more technology or technical than I was.
0: You say that he's the opposite of you. He is the
1: opposite of me. So he went to Columbia University, summa cum laude, computer engineer, you know, Westinghouse finalist, photographic memory and, you know and i was more of like the the dude from college <laughs> so, you, know, and, <laughs> you, you are hard on yourself <laughs>
0: you know um, you uh, talk about uh, too surrounding yourself with right, with different right, kinds of but right. go ahead
1: but you know. anyway so we you know he enabled all these things but you know so then we were we built the largest transactional you know website in the world for columbia house records in 95 and we were doing all these great things and and then I realized what I knew was recruiting. So we started hot jobs and I thought my recruiters would sell it, but it sat in a shelf for about six months because they weren't going to sell it because it' compete against them. So I started hiring people for it, and this is in late '96. And in '97, um, our technology won the best internet or best network software program, you know at Comdex. And, you know, so we had the best technology for, by far. But we were going up against billion dollar companies. So Omnicom who you mentioned earlier, they owned Career Mosaic was the number one job board and TMP owned Monster and so they were large ad agencies. So think of huge advertising agencies with 600 700 staff selling and when Colgate wanted to put an ad in the paper, they would call TMP and they'd put it in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, because this is you know this is when New York Times made 65 percent of its revenue from classified advertising. So I was going up against billion-dollar companies, and I was self-funding my company, you know Ben and I, with about hundred thousand dollars a month, and oh, a month, a month. And so we were losing. And we were growing very fast, but you know back then, if you weren't one or two, you were toast. There were all these expressions. and we were number six in the space, or something like that. And so I was, you know, there was just pressure. It's like you can't keep spending a hundred thousand dollars a month.
0: So there's there's this pressure, and your, your brain is looking for ways to leapfrog ahead. But you're also thinking about closing the company. So, right. and, so and, and so these two things are kind of in your brain at the same time
1: um so you know so i think the you know the gift and the curse of you know of you know sort of what i you know the dyslexia and dyslexia is that you look at problems inside out and upside down you just don't see a problem the same way that others do and so you know and then you develop patterns around that and you see the patterns of you know the consequence of You know, sort of the butterfly, you know, flapping its wing and, you know, a tsunami around the, you know, on the other side of the world. Um, You know, you just see those patterns continually in life, or at least I do. And so I see these patterns and and, but that, you know, you know, I was just trying to problem solve this thing of closing my company. And I was like, I know what I'll do. I will run a Super Bowl ad. And it just seemed to me crystal clear. Like there was I never looked back once I had that idea. It was just boom. That's what I'm going to do.
0: And you and Ben mortgaged everything.
1: So we mortgaged our house. It was a huge gamble. <laughs> so, like
0: what? Is it, but no part of your brain went, huh? What if it doesn't work?
1: Well, you know, there were a lot of reasons why it would, even if it didn't get the publicity that we got. Um, you know, we were competing against these big boys, and and. You know, we went to go to the customers and say, did you see our Super Bowl ad? So, you know, from a sales standpoint, they were, and, and people are looking for jobs in the beginning of the new year. They're sitting on the couch watching the Super Bowl. They made a New Year's resolution to look for a new job, and here's our ad. So I had justified running the ad. I never knew we would get the publicity that we got yeah. for very fundamental business reasons. Yeah. And and I think those reasons are still sound. I still would have done it all over again. Um, and, you know, it just turned out that, you know, once the news got a hold of the fact that we were the smallest company in the history of the Super Bowl to ever <laughs> advertise, you know, it just took a life of its own.
0: Yeah. And and it's interesting. So you you made your ultimate goal of reaching a point financially where you didn't have to work and you didn't have to constantly chase the next dollar or the next big thing. You moved to Wilmington after a couple of years. Uh, auditions of of other places I think sure. Wyoming was one of right, them right. and then you wound up here and now that you don't have to do that you've started Masonboro.org, you've got a tree farm that we're going to talk about you're you're looking to revitalize burga but what what makes you happy like when you think back to those moments that are really special what are they where do they come from
1: well I think you know Happiness is, you know, my, you know, I told my mother years ago, I just want to be happy, and she scolded me for that. She's like, you know, happiness is not just a gift you're given. You have to work for it. <laughs> you have to, you know, it's it's having a sense of purpose in life and and feeling like you're accomplishing something. And and so, you know, I guess it's that, um, you know, puritanical, you know, work ethic or whatever. But, um, you know, it's just not a state of being. It's it's you know. You know, living a purposeful life sort of creates, you know, a spirit that you've done something. And, and that's what brings me satisfaction. So
0: and, what is your purpose?
1: And, uh, well, I don't know that I have one specific purpose. It's, it's just that when you, you know, I would go back to sort of what we talked about earlier, um, you know, uh, in the break was that, you know, my father died when he was 41. And, you know, my brother died when he was 30. And so when you have that type of trauma in your life and you know and then you retire and you're a type A personality and you're running this big company with you know 450 people you know people are like you're never going to retire you're never going to be you're know, like you're going but so you don't retire and, and you know I don't play golf so you know what are you going to do and so you have to throw yourself into something whether it's working out or you know but you know and all that's great you have to you know I think at hot jobs I was I was, you know, that sort of singular focus. I wasn't focused on my health, and I wasn't focused on my friends, and I wasn't focused on my family. I was focused on hot jobs. And I was so focused on it that I just was willing it to succeed. And trying to find the pattern or the combination or the string I could pull next that gets it closer to the finish line. And so then when it was all done, it was just like, oh my God, I need to take a break from this. And so that was like the refresh. We moved to Wyoming. And I wanted to get to know my kids again and and my wife again. and so we spent a lot of family time there, but then we realized our rest of our family was on the East Coast. and she's from Virginia and went to Chapel Hill, as I mentioned. and we came down to Wilmington and what's not to love so when you you said you lost your brother
0: when he was thirty, can you can you tell us what happened?
1: Um, well, that was a again. It's the trauma in life that you know hits you. But I just finished my first year as a headhunter, and I'd set company records. And November, it was you know I set the company record for best month ever. Um, so I was like on top of the world, and you know it. You know I was just full of myself that you know things couldn't you know get any better, and I was like gonna take this week and. My family has a, a hunting fishing cabin in Pennsylvania and all the uncles and everybody get together. And, and my brother was working in Germany and he flew home and um, and we were hunting and, and we had just a tragic accident. My 13-year-old cousin shot at a deer and the bullet ricocheted and ended up hitting my brother.
0: I'm so sorry.
1: Wow. Um, so. And so you went on with the sense that life is really short right. and fragile. And so, you know, I had all these friends and people that I knew from business that just, you know, and I get it. You know, there's something intoxicating with, you know, having success and having more success. And, you know, as you get older, all that success leads to more money and more money. But, you know, early on, I was just like, how much money is enough? And do you, you know, feel like
0: you know the answer to that?
1: No, I don't know. You know that's <laughs> whatever each person feels they need to have. And I didn't understand my money when I first got it, you know because I was you know I didn't know if you know, when the '08 crash, you know, could I lose it all? And remember, I was you know, on social security as a kid, so I had insecurity about money to begin with. So I was afraid I would lose it all. So you know, it's just living conservatively and, and trying even to understand what wealth is is a challenge um but you know then you get to the point where again, I thank my mom and my family, but you know you know she was just into everything and and at her memorial service I read out the list of um you know you know places she gave money to every year. It was like 45 different you know even if it was just ten dollars or a hundred dollars, you know she just was always about giving back and so I think that was, kind of instilled in me. And, and so I decided to use the skills and talents I had to help nonprofits. And, you know, what I've done in Wilmington is just a small fraction of sort of everything that I've done. Right.
0: And we're also, we're going to talk a little bit about your tree farm and uh, some of the, uh, the effort that you're putting into your hometown in Pennsylvania. Right. Right. Uh, But if you, if you had some advice for other people who may be don't see patterns the way you do, and and haven't learned how to problem solve quite the way you do. What do you think? What do you think is the biggest block for most people? Like, what advice would you give someone? Oh my gosh!
1: You know, it's it's like you know, there's so many p- blocks that society places on you, and your you know your structure, your family structure, growing up, and you know, being polite, being kind, those are good things. But you know, then there's other things like you know, you know maybe the structures of school aren't always the best for everybody and and the rules aren't, you know, like you need to sort of have some critical thinking on your own. And, you know, I just see, you know, from my standpoint, you know, not having options, not having choices, I had to go out and find those if I wanted them. And so, um, you know, I think I lost your question. So yeah, answer. I
0: mean it's a it's a hard question because it's broad. But right. what would what do you think stops most people from really doing what they want to do? Or what what stops people from I think so many humans have way more potential than they're even
1: aware of. Right. Oh my god, it's crazy. Yeah. So, so... I think it's it's the imagination of people that hold them back. I'll give you the classic example as a, a headhunter when I was interviewing people, I'd see these guys come in, you know, out of school as civil engineers. And this is 1987, 88, 89. I'm like, "Why did you become an engineer? There's not a lot of engineering going on in the country right now." It was kind of a law and it was like, well, my dad was an engineer. And it was like, well, when your dad was an engineer, it was like being a software engineer today. It was like the hottest job you could have in the 50s, and yet, you know, the son became an engineer because he was following in the footsteps of his dad. It was terrible advice, you know? It's like, go get become an electrical engineer or a computer engineer, that's the hot job now. And so you just find that people's habits and patterns kind of hold them back as well. So it's the lack of critical thinking it's it's
0: really questioning every the what influences the decisions that you're making
1: well there's a lot of comfort in not having to change and you know just find a pattern and and you know and following the script and but i think you know the people who have and not everybody needs to go out and build a big company, but, you know, those people tend to be left-handed or or ADHD because, you know, they're, you know, they don't fit into those normal patterns, and, and so they, you know, they go out and find a pattern that works for them.
0: Why did you buy a tree farm?
1: That's a good question. So I, you know, it's a funny story. I was hunting with some friends and, and you know, duck hunting, and I haven't done a lot of it, and you know, it's one of those things I don't really hunt a lot, but, you know, I was always a pretty good shot with the skeet and stuff, and so every time, I, I rarely embarrassed myself, but this time I missed everything I shot at, and <laughs> I was just horribly embarrassed, so I, I, that kind of led me to, I need to find a place I can go and hang out, and maybe do some skeet shooting, and, and just, you know, Wilmington's getting busy, I have four daughters, and, you know, it'd just be great, and so I started looking, and then this farm popped up, and so, I, it was just perfect for what I, it was opportunity, so I jumped on it, and I bought it, and I was like, now I own a farm. I got to do something with farming, and so it had been a nursery for 50 years, but it took me three years to figure out that I wanted to be a nursery, and so, <laughs> um, but I don't know enough to have a, you know, about the nursery business to be in that thing, so I figured I would pick one plant and become an expert in that plant. And so I love live oaks. And, you know, I've transplanted before I ever had this idea. I added, you know, 20 live oaks to our property. And and then I began to find out this terrible fact that, you know, all the live oaks are being grown in Florida. And over, you know, 80% of them. And about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, they started genet- genetically altering them and growing them so they grow straight and tall. And they're called cathedrals and and high-rises, and so, you know, there's a lot of developments in Wilmington. If you go, those are live oaks, but they don't look anything like a live oak. And so, I had the idea, because it's all about marketing, let's restore the heritage live oaks of southeastern North Carolina. And so, I called early Gardens, and I talked to them, and I said, what happens if your tree gets, you know, the old girl ends up getting knocked down in a hurricane? How about, let's say, for the last 20 years, We've been ra- you know raising the next generation of early garden live oaks, and so they've been wonderful, and that partnership has led to about twenty thousand dollars in donations from them from tree sales. So you know it's it's great giving back to them, and we made deals with Fort Fisher and the George Washington, and there's all these live oaks around Wilmington that are you know pre-Columbus, and so we pick the acorns, we raise them, and, and we have a tree farm, thirty thousand trees so far.
0: You're listening to Coastline. It's a conversation with Wilmington resident and social entrepreneur Richard Johnson. After this short break, we'll talk about how he sorts through his ideas and decides which ones deserve action. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Richard Johnson launched hotjobs.com in the mid-90s when few Americans were even using the internet. He decided to run a Super Bowl TV ad in 1999, cost about half of the company's annual revenue, but it worked and he eventually sold the company to Yahoo, came to Wilmington with his family, created a nonprofit to preserve Masonboro Island, started a tree farm. Now he has his site set on the town of Burgaw, where he will award some lucky winner of a national contest, a million-dollar budget to build that person their own restaurant in Burgaw. And Richard Johnson, just before we went to break, you were talking about the acorns, the heritage acorns sure. that you're growing at Penderley Farms. And where is Penderley Farms and is it so, open to the public?
1: So it's will be soon, but you know, we so the problem with this business model on the tree farm is that when you start picking acorns, they're not really ready <laughs> for sale for a few years. So, yeah, how long we, does so, it take? So we have uh, smaller trees, but really the sort of nursery standard is a 25 gallon tree. And so those will be ready in 2024.
0: So how long has um, it taken? Uh, when, when we
1: picked and So we started picking acorns in the fall of 2019. Okay. And uh, it's about five years to get to a 25 gallon. But we have a lot, you know, so what we've done is some fundraisers with three gallons, which are beautiful trees. And we're, you know, moving up to seven and 15 gallons. So by the end of the summer, we'll have sort of a full suite. And then next spring we'll have, you know, from a small tree all the way to a twenty-five gallon tree. But we also have some remnant trees that were on the farm that are, you know, six, seven, eight, you know, inch caliber. So we'll have a full suite of one tree, live oaks, <laughs> which is what we specialize at Penderley Farms.
0: Yeah, and it's a good this area needs that. Right. So do you think that it will have any influence on Landscaping companies or developers in terms of what they decide to well,
1: plant. Fortunately, we've just gotten such great feedback with, with the you know Wilmington Tree Alliance, the Arboretum, the Airly Gardens, and so I think that you know we're not we're starting to get some awareness, but I think it comes down to the customers. Do they want a genetically altered tree from Florida, or do they want a heritage live oak that came from this area that comes from these marquee trees? And so I think the landscapers and the, you know, they'll start being, you know, the customers start requesting a penderleaf farm. And we're not, you know, we're not, they're no more expensive than the trees from Florida. You know, um, again, we're trying to do this more as a social good project than, you know, I don't know. If we can break even, it'll be wonderful.
0: (laughs) And this one makes sense because you originally bought the land, even though it had been a nursery for half a century. You bought it to do something else and then went, okay, well this makes sense
1: so we've raised about 30,000 trees so far yeah so we are really gonna have a lot of trees coming up in 2024 so mm-hmm. that's when we'll build our marketing team and and start making relationships that even beyond North Carolina for selling these trees
0: okay and so then you had this other idea um, about revitalizing Burgot. why did why why you don't even live in Burgot. so
1: you know, so a lot of the ideas I've had, you know, they're kind of iterative. You know, you, you do one thing and it shows you another opportunity. It shows you another opportunity. So, you know, I was a headhunter and then I started my own company. And then I started, you know, a consulting company on that. And then I started a internet company and then we started a software company. So it was all on the same theme. Um, we just took it as far upstream as it would go. And so, you know, Burgos is, this, you know, as you know, is this, this iconic, beautiful railroad town, it's built around a train depot and a courthouse, and it's just gorgeous. And after having the farm, and it's only two miles away, I would go in there to get coffee, and I just kept getting amazed, you know, how many buildings were empty. And so yeah. I don't know if it was seventy percent, but a huge number of towns. I'm like, how can this be? So at first I'm like, hmm, these are empty buildings. Maybe I should buy a couple, you yeah. know, but I really didn't give it much thought. And then the next year, it seemed like the town was even a little further, you know, had, you know, maybe another store had closed. And so by 2018, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to buy some of these buildings. And
0: And so this is before Hurricane Florence.
1: Before Hurricane Florence and into Hurricane Florence, we were buying buildings. We bought like seven buildings in Burgaw. And, uh, you know, which was definitely the low. (laughs) So we found the bottom. And, you know, so that turned out, you know, to be good. But What the problem was is I didn't know anything about commercial real estate. And you know, that's kind of the whole brain thing. It's like, you know, once you've done something once, you're looking to do something completely different and then it's a puzzle, you have to figure it out. So I bought these buildings and it was then that I realized you could have given them to me for free. You know, you can't just let them sit there. And, you know, and so if you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars fixing them up, you couldn't rent them and get a return on your investment because there's no foot traffic. So, these towns across America that have seen their better days, um, you know they you know they need some effort to be revitalized. And you see examples of towns across America getting revitalized in South Carolina. Like Car- what
0: what makes it happen?
1: So if you take Charleston, South Carolina, the founder of Donovan Left whatever, Lefkett Jarrett, you know, he came in and he bought like fifteen of these mansions and restored them. And that was the kickoff. In Pittsburgh, you know, they said, let's make this a tech center and I don't know what Detroit did to turn it around, but you see these examples, but it all requires investment. And so you have all these small towns across America. I didn't think, And now we're getting ahead of yourself because, or myself, because I wasn't thinking any of that. I was just like, oh my gosh, I own these seven buildings. What can I do? <laughs> and so the first thing is I have to get people to come to Burgaw. You know, I, and, and the problem with that happened in Burgaw is that you see the Highway 117-53 exchange. And so we got a McDonald's there. We got a Kentucky Fried Chicken and seven fast foods, two gas stations, a Walmart. So in some ways that became the new downtown of Burgos. And so my challenge is how do we get people back downtown? And that's when it kind of hit me. The first idea was like New York style pizzeria will get people. So I didn't have anybody who would, I don't want to run it, so I just want to build it and have somebody else run it. And um, so I kind of started this search for people, and I went up to the guy who owns Vito's Pizza and said, you want to have a pizzeria in Burgo?" He's like, no, I'm trying to slow down a little. And a great guy. And and then there was a Jay Crenshaw, um, a teacher at Cape Fear Academy who, you know, his contract didn't get renewed. And 28 years of teaching, and all of a Perfect sudden... Perfect
0: guy to own and run a pizzeria. Right. Never run a restaurant. You never run a restaurant. No pizza experience. No experience whatsoever. And he even didn't do anything in the kitchen, but hey, so he's your well, pizza guy.
1: As it turns out, pizzerias are probably the easiest restaurant to learn. So, um, so you know, I was trying to help him find a job, but the the companies were just seeing him as a teacher. And I knew him. He, you know, I, he, I coached with him. He taught my kids. I just knew he was this great guy. And so... I asked Keith Norris at Vito's, would he train him? And so he worked at Vito's for a year while I built him the pizzeria, and and then and then he opened it up, and it was three months after COVID hit in August of 2020. And what did people want in August of 2020? Take yeah. out pizza. Perfect so timing. So he crushed it, and honestly, he's still crushing it today. It's just and and since then. 5 new businesses have opened in Burgaw. So it was and really like And have you like had this, a
0: hand in all of those businesses? None of them.
1: they started, you know, it's just the town is kind of coming back and and so you know that was that was just great, but so when you start, so then I started the whole thing, how do you help revitalize a town and what are the commonalities? And I started looking at all these towns. What's really interesting was that there's another town I'm trying to help in Pennsylvania and I looked and the population peak of that town was 1910. And then I found out the population peak in Bergo was 1910. And then I found out that was the peak in like 10 other towns. I was like, and then it dawned me, the car all of a sudden there was a car and people could drive to other towns so the it started the whole from a micro economy to a macro economy and so were winners and losers but you know burgo what really hurt you know sort of the death nail for burgo was in the 80s when the route 40 was built and the and the train stopped running and then the and then the bank stopped opening on Saturdays.
0: And this is something else that you've noticed. It's another pattern that you've right. noticed.
1: And so this pattern that was leading to decline. It's like how do you create another pattern that leads to you know sort of a resurgence? And so the great thing was I did that, and then I started building a you know um, brew pub, and we're opening that in a couple weeks. Okay. It's really exciting. What and, What's
0: the name of the brew pub?
1: Um, it's called Burgaw Brewing. It's a very creative Okay, name. Well, there, you know, it's. <laughs> so, um, so, which it turns out, you know, I went up to.
0: And you tell me, you found a guy who'd never been in a brewery, run a brewery. No, 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 no. no.
1: So, okay. so this time I went to Robin and, and, and Art um, Hill, who owned Panacea. And I said, you want to have a, a brew pub in Burgaw? And they were all in but then they opened their restaurant. And I just was like, that's a lot to do two things. And so we were talking about it. We both decided maybe take a pause. And then that was two or three weeks before COVID. So we were kind of figuring it out and then COVID, which just put a hard stop on everything. Unknown to me is they had already gone to Kevin Kozak, who was the original brewmaster for Front Street Brewery and recruited him. And he moved to Bergo on the hopes of having this brew pub open. And um, and and so he was all ready. And so coming out of the pandemic, he and I got together and I was like, you wanna have a brew pub? And he's like, he calls it the 45 second interview because it, the whole thing was, I was like, okay, I'll build you one. And um, so, you know, we've been working on that for way too long and, uh, and so
0: that's coming to fruition soon
1: that is coming and
0: and you're also running this national it's a national contest but most of your entrants have been in the southeastern part of the united states and north carolina specifically
1: so one so again that goes to if you start looking at the patterns of towns right there are a lot of things a town needs, and what I'm doing is just a fraction of what you know Burgaw needs. And there's lots of people in that town that are working. You got Chamber of Commerce, you got the mayor. I mean, you got. Re- I mean, they're doing lots of things, to improve it, helping the sewer and and all kinds of blocking and tackling things. But one thing that I kept finding again and again is that pattern is is just a vibrant restaurant scene, and that can make or break a community. Mm-hmm. And so, if you want people to come and live in Burgaw you have to have a place for them to go. And so the brew pub just, those two things were obvious. And so when you said, you know, I see patterns and I have these ideas and I execute, um, if it's crystal clear to me, I do. If it's not, I can spend years on a math problem before I figure it out. And so I, was, I spent a year trying to figure out what I was going to do as a third restaurant and met a lot of wonderful people but could not find somebody who wanted to do it. and I couldn't find a theme and one day I was just like, again, the idea is, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do? I can't find anybody. I want to do one last restaurant, and then I'm kind of done with the restaurants in Berga. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'll run a nationwide competition. Or I didn't think it was going to be nationwide, but I'll run a restaurant competition, and the winner will get a turnkey restaurant.
0: And so— People are pitching you their ideas for a restaurant? Is that what the first round is about?
1: So it took us a year to build the website because it's not so easy to give away a restaurant, as it turns out. <laughs> There's all these rules and legal things about running competitions. You can't call it a contest. It's a competition. And uh, so I had to learn a lot of things. And so we la- I had the idea um, Thanksgiving, um, before, you know, a year ago Thanksgiving, and we launched it. So it took a year. We launched in December the competition.
0: And what are you looking for? I know you've got a panel of, of local judges, and they're impressive people, like Keith Rhodes of Ketch, and Dean Neff of Seabird, and uh, I think Myram, the chef...
1: McDuffie. And, yes, from... And Meemaw's Meemaw's, and, Burgaw, yes. and Christy Ferretti from Pine Valley Market.
0: So that's a pretty impressive slate of judges. What will they be looking for from the winner?
1: Well... I met Dean. I know Crusty and Dean, so you know. Um, so we've, you know, I've known them for years, and and Dean actually came to Bergall and helped us do a fundraiser in the train depot, and he cooked, and we had a hundred people, and it was wonderful. Of course, because yes. <laughs> he's just such a great guy, and uh, so we did that, and then he was the first person I approached. I'm like, you know, and I, you know, I, you don't need to know much about him, but he's about giving back to community. So, so he was in right away. And then I talked to Christy Ferretti, and she was in right away, and she does a lot of work with Glow Academy and, and, you know, again, gives back. And and Myra, it's in her backyard up there in Burgaw. And then the last person I approached was Keith, who's just this amazing, you know, I've only eaten there a few times, and I didn't really know him, but I knew his reputation, and I approached him, and just another wonderful guy.
0: So we just have a couple of minutes left, uh, and so we know it's not going to be – a ribs uh, or a country cook and restaurant to compete with Mimos. <laughs> right. So nobody – But, so but we've what had, will it be?
1: So we've – you know, so it's amazing, you know, that once – I wrote a Facebook post about it because I wasn't sure how to get the word out. And that's resulted in about 20 written stories, you know, the New York uh, – I'm sorry, the Star News and Wilmington Business Journal sort of broke it. And, and so we've had all these great stories. And that has led to people applying. And um, – so, we have about 400 applicants who want to have their own restaurant. And yeah. so,
0: what kind of pitches are you getting?
1: Um, well, you know, we're also in talks with um, major you networks. You are not
0: telling me anything <laughs> right. about the kind of restaurant no, no. that you're shooting I just, for or, what your, right, right. or the ideas so, that are coming in. So
1: they have to present their theme. So, it can't be a brew pub, it can't be a coffee shop, it can't be something, that, a pizzeria, it can't be something that's already there. So, we've had a few applicants who have. Said I want to do a brew pub. It's like, did you not look at Burgos? But you know, we're just getting these wonderful applicants, and we, yeah, I would say, we moved about two hundred and ninety of the four hundred onto the second round. And so there's every kind of theme from soul to Cajun to you know Italian. I can't tell you how many uh, lasagnas I've seen as a signature dish. <laughs> um, and. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have this cook-off in Burgaw. The last 32 finalists will come there, and they'll get a 10 by 10 tent, and they'll get to have a signature dish, and we'll get the townsfolk to come out, and they'll pick who they like, and that will be the 10 finalists. And from there, we'll find out who's going to have a, their own restaurant in Burgaw.
0: Look forward to hearing who that turns out to be. And that's this edition of Coastline. Richard Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by. Find the episode at WHQR.org, along with links and resources. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.